the Old Testament to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. You'll find that on page 380 in your pew Bibles. It's not as printed otherwise. 380, the other passage we'll be looking in the New Testament, found in the book of James, and that's page 1291, or 1291. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word in its originals. If, if the Word of God is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men and women of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has before ordained that we should be doing. This is God's Word, 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have your Bibles there, uh, you can follow along. Um, you'll notice that there is a focus uh, on a few of the different texts but uh, I want to go to, to, uh, to the first one to connect you to people. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now that is context for you. If you now turn to the, uh, the middle portion, you're going to find that as we look at these particular texts in, in verse 20, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and said, how long, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, Follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Verse 22, that's when Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people said, it is well spoken. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it. You do it first, for you are many, and call upon the God in the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from the morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to mock them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood actually gushed out upon them. And at mid as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. 
And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as could, t- could contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering of the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation in the evening, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. O Lord, I pray that you will bring us to understand the same message. I pray that before we leave today, that we might be saying, Oh Lord, you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin a new month. We begin a new sermon series. If you have your bulletin card, you can take a look. It follows the same picture and pattern of the prayer vigil. Uh, we're wanting to, vis- to visit several places where God talked with his people. I want to give you two calls this month. One is a call to go. One is a call to pray. The first one is a call that I have personally generated. God has put it on my heart. It is an open invitation to go, not to the mission field, although it is one, but to go to Israel with us. I plan to leave in about two months. Uh, We're hoping to to work that together. There's still some room to be able to join the group. Next Sunday after church, we're going to have our first gathering. Uh, It's not too late to come. This open invitation is because God put it on my heart a good while back that I've always wanted to take my kids to be able to see those sites, the empty tomb, to be able to see the Sea of Galilee, to be able to look at Calvary and see the Golgotha skull, to be able to, to go to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane at the bottom with trees that are over 2,000 years old, Maybe there when Jesus prayed. But also to go to the top of Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended into heaven. Where the disciples just stood there gazing. I'd like to be able to see these things. And if you have the opportunity to join us, come. But I believe that there are a few of you that will still be able to join us. But right now I actually do believe that most of you won't. The call is not to fall on deaf ears. But it's we're going to take this journey by going through the sermon series through the land of Israel. We are not going to actually be able to stand at those sites, but by God's grace, we're going to go through the words of Scripture and take you there. This is not something that makes you more godly or more spiritual if you participate, like the proverbial going to Mecca. That actually is another religion, and that's one of their pillars. No, with the gospel, we don't have to go anywhere. Jesus has to come into us.
So just know that, that is, this is just an encouragement. Um, I, do wanna, I, I do pray that we'll have uh, a greater excitement. That's why I call, I want you to, to go to these places with me. Like today, we're going to go to Carmel. The second challenge this month is to pray. The call to pray. I didn't initiate this one. This is one that God himself initiated. Uh, he says men ought always to, to pray and not to faint. So always, already you have scripture that tells us. Even Brother Morris in his prayer was quoting from Paul when he said pray without ceasing. We know these texts, but our nation has called us in November to give thanks. It's a great, great call from our, from our elected leaders. This call to thanks, which comes at Thanksgiving, is usually, it has two aspects to it. The one, it is a, an appeal to look back to the pilgrims, to be able to see the bounty that God gave them as a heritage and to be able to say thank you. I mean, and to be able to rejoice with them. The other side is for us to have a personal response of thanksgiving to God. Because Thanksgiving is not just something you think about in the past, it's something that you do. You remember the old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one? Have you ever tried to count somebody else's blessings? What happens when you do? Usually you become bitter. Usually you start to get jealous. You see, the idea of thankfulness is something that's got to well up from inside of you. So this whole call to thanksgiving is twofold. It is corporate, our national call, and secondly, it is our personal response. Sadly today, I think that the national call is is largely going to be ignored. When I go into the shopping stores and we look for decorations, what decorations do you see? You see Halloween decorations everywhere. And now they'll be transitioning, half price tomorrow. And then, then you're going to see that it's all going to turn red and green. Where? Well, you might be able to find something that celebrates Turkey Day. But if you understand what I'm saying, the secular people don't know how to celebrate Thanksgiving if they don't know who to thank. If they don't know God, then are you going to thank yourself because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps? Are you going to thank government? What are you going to think? The churches need to rally like us and point people upward. And that's the call to thanksgiving. And we're going we're gonna to be doing that this month. And that's part of this weaving together. So today I want to take you on this journey, this interesting journey through the month of November uh, to Carmel. And so if you're walking with me and we were to go, it'd be like this. I want you to, to uh, geographically orient yourself that that's north. Okay. And uh, so if you were down and you were standing in Jerusalem, you'd be back here, down here by Gary. This would be where Jerusalem would be. So if you're in Jerusalem and you're looking north, all the way over there, that blue curtain is going to be the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? And if you're standing there in Jerusalem, you can't see the Mediterranean Sea because it's too far of a distance. But really, it's not much wider than New Jersey. It's a small area over in the Holy Lands. But we're going to be going to Carmel. And how do we get to Carmel? Well, if you look way over there to the northwest, uh, over where the offering box is, that's where Mount Carmel is. And in order to get there, you go up the Jordan Valley here, and you come up. Once you get up to Galilee, you cross over. This is where Jesus was born in the area of, uh, well, this is where he grew up, 
And, you know, and you, you can hear about where Jake, Mary's, Mary's home in Nazareth. But then if you go into the Megiddo Valley, which is a little bit over here, which all of you know from Armageddon, the Megiddo Valley, it's all down here. And it, when it comes up to the edge of the valley, then there's a hill that goes up. And that hill that goes up looks a lot like that. So when you climb the 1,700 feet to get to the top of Mount Carmel, it takes about an hour and a half from the bottom if you walk it today. This is where we are, 1 Kings 18. Why is Carmel so important? It's just a piece of rock. Why would you want to go to Carmel? And I'll tell you, it's because God showed up. And that's why if I brought you back to another map and I stood you today in Delaware and we were in southern Delaware like we are, why is this place important? Because God Talk to us here. God spoke to us here. Think with me for those moments. So as we are going to count Carmel, we're going to understand and unpack all the things that took place there. You're going to find that there are three things that are, that are really significant at Carmel. And I, as I read through the story, I couldn't really pick them out, but I'm thankful for the book of James. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to that passage in James chapter 5, James does the exposition for us. He talks about the prayer of faith beginning at verse 13, and then I'm going to highlight it. He says, if anybody is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing. If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, verse 15, and the prayer of sick will save the one who is sick. And if you've committed sins, they can be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. And this is our text. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain. And then he prayed again at Carmel. He prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I want to encourage you, brothers, that prayer is important. The three things that I'm discovering in, at Carmel are these things called, there are passions, there are prayers, and there is providence. There is passion, there are prayers, and there is providence. The first thing, when you, when you read the old King James Version about, uh, from James, he said, Elijah was a man like us. He had like passions as we do. Passions. Do you have any passion? What are you passionate about? If I looked around the room and I tried to look at your overcoat today, if it was a little colder, some of you might have emblems on him. Are you passionate about football? Does that make you cry when your team loses? The best player gets hurt? What are you passionate about? Are you, are you happy when you get to see your financial planner and he tells you you're good? Is that what you're passionate about? Are you happy if you could just get through the day and people have not called you and picked on you and annoyed you? Are you just passionate about your space? What is it that makes you passionate? When Elijah is a man with like passions as we do, a similar nature like ours, you just got to look at that and say, why would James bring this up? 
Why didn't he just simply say that Elijah prayed? Because I want you to know that the prayer of Elijah was passionate. It's going to be explained in a few moments, but you're going to be able to see that when, when Elijah grew up, Elijah didn't know this land. Remember, I told you, Elijah, I took you over to Jerusalem. I came over to Megiddo. We were over at, at Nazareth. That was not the hometown for Elijah. You know where Elijah came from? He crossed over the river. It'd be like through those doors. On the other side of the Jordan, it would be in modern-day Jordan. And uh, he lived in the area called Gilead. And somebody taught him when he was a youngster the books of Moses. How do I know this? Because when he prayed, he prayed the scriptures from Deuteronomy. So what I want to be able to start off with you is that this man had passion. And when you think about the three passions that are seen here, one of the passions is that he had a passion that God would be seen as God. He was really sick of the idea that the people around him, even though they claimed to be God's people, it'd be like being in church and having so many people around you not really care about God. They're more concerned about lunch than about hearing God's word. And that's kind of Elijah's passion. He was like, God needs to be seen as God. The glory of God needs to be first and foremost. Even before Jesus said, Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God, Elijah was already there. He's already there. First thing you see about the passion. He lived in a time when the government officials were not favorable to Christianity. In fact, there was a woman that was behind the scenes up there in the government echelons, and her name, well, you all know what her name was, Jezebel. But she pulled the strings, she did the maneuvering, and whatever she said kind of happened. So much so that when you look at the reality of the Christians in that area, most of them were out of political correctness, and most of them were put to death. You can read a little bit of the passage I skipped today. I skipped in chapter 18, Obadiah spared a few of them. He took the Christians and, that were going to be killed and he hid them in caves and he tried to supply them with food. Would you say this was a good time to be alive? These were not the glory days of Israel. And Elijah had a passion for God being God. He was so sick of this idea that you can have any God you want to choose. He would have not been a proponent of pick your higher power. When he heard that the government leaders were worshiping Baal, when they openly embraced the secular patterns, the, the things, the, the hedonism that went with it. He was, an, he was not, he was not Melba Toast. He had passion. And you can read about that in the thing. Now, secondly, he also had a passion for his people. Somehow or other, you realize that even though this guy was an isolationist, do you know he probably was a Ravens fan because the Ravens had come to feed him when he was out by the brook. Okay? And he was out there all alone until the brook dried up. And then he had to leave and go over to the widow of Zarephath. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is that he was an isolationist, but somehow or other, he cares for the people. He has a heart that's enlarged for the people of God. And so when he challenged this idea that, that we would have a meeting at Carmel, up in this time, Ahab couldn't find him. He was like a, you couldn't even find him like Waldo in the picture. It was as if he was missing. And, and the story is that God finally comes to him in chapter 18, verse 1. He says, I want you to show yourself to Ahab the king. And so the story says, we're going to meet up on Carmel. 
You see the significance of Carmel? They made the journey up there. It was early in the morning. The reason I know it's early in the morning, because the Bible tells us, the history records, that there was going to be a prayer meeting up at the top of the mountain. Imagine getting up early in the morning to pray. I wonder where we've heard that before. And so they climbed the mountain. It was a little easier to drive to church here than to climb that mountain, I bet. But he went up there early in the morning, and that's where they met. And what reception he had. How many people loved Ahab? Well, how did they? They they did love Ahab. Did they love Elijah? Now, if you don't know the answer to that question, let me tell you why I know. It's because Elijah was a man with passions like us, and he prayed that it would not rain. And it would not rain for the space of three years and six months. Okay, time out. What happens when it doesn't rain for three and a half years? What happens to the price of food? What happens to a cool drink of water? It becomes rarer and rarer. The people all blamed him. CNN said it was Elijah's fault. He was not fit to be able to, to, to have a position of leadership. And they, I mean, that's why they had a death sentence out for him. Do you understand? Nobody liked Elijah because he prayed the way he prayed. God tells him, we want you to pray some more. Go up to Carmel. So when they all met up at Carmel, it's dusty. It's a mess. I'm telling you, it's a powerful sight to stand there. So they have the prayer meeting. And that goes, so the the point I want to make was there was passions. You can see the passions that Elijah has, the passions for God's glory and the passion for God's people. Secondly, I want to take you to the prayers. On the hill, there was two kinds of prayers going on at that prayer meeting. There was prayers to a God of their own imagination and there was a prayer to a God. Now, if you pray to a God of your own imagination, Baal, okay, what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to them. But no voice. No one answered. You remember hearing that in the text? That's what's going to happen if you're praying to the God that you made up. Now, if you pray to yourself, you might be able to get an answer. I'm not sure what you tell yourself when things don't work out the way you want. But if if you understand, there was a double prayer meeting going on. And so the first part of the prayer meeting, they all went to one booth, one station, okay? And they prayed there, and it was kind of okay. And then after, after the bells rang, then they went to the next level of their praying, and they started to get swords and stuff. And the Bible says that it started to get pretty bloody. That doesn't sound like a prayer meeting to me. It sounds like they're trying to manipulate God. And finally, Elijah says, time out, guys. It's lunchtime. This is a futile effort. You know it, too. You've never met Baal. Baal's never comforted your soul. Baal's never even been able to send a raindrop. You guys, you know it's a joke. He says, what, is your Baal, is he at the bathroom relieving himself? Maybe he slept in this morning. Do you understand the humor Almost the nastiness. But he was trying to show them, you've got 450 of you guys, only one of me, and you guys are all wrong. It's like the world is screwed up. And Elijah just stands there, and they still keep praying all through the afternoon. And it comes to the evening time. What a long prayer meeting. You would think they would be fully refreshed. 
I think by this time, they're drained of all their energy. They're drained of, of all hope. No one answered. See, the, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. James chapter 5, verse 16. You remember that portion? The Bible does tell us about prayer, and that's why James has Elijah in mind when he says the prayer of a righteous person matters. Prayers make a difference. Now, you might say you've been praying a long time for something and specifically. And oftentimes when we're praying for God to fix people, we don't get what we're praying for because you're praying for the wrong person. If you're praying for God to fix somebody, you ought to be looking in the mirror. If you pray for God to fix the person in the mirror, you will see changes. But as you, as you look at this thing, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Elijah is up there ready to pray. And the fascinating thing about Elijah's prayer is that he prayed the word of God. He prayed Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and following, which goes on to tell you that when you go into the promised land, the new generation that's going to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land, he says, you're not going to be like it was in Egypt. In Egypt, you had this big river called the, the Nile, and it used to be cultivated and irrigated so you could flood the fields and you could have good crops. That's how it was in Egypt. When you come to the new land, you're going to have to have the rain come down. And he says, the rain is not going to come down if you ignore the scriptures, if you say that God is not important to you. When you start to realize in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God says, I will shut up the windows of heaven. I will not pour out a blessing upon you. You will not have what you think you need. The land is not going to keep flowing with milk and honey, which was promised in the promised land. When Elijah stepped up to pray from Gilead, he just said, Lord, be faithful to your word. And then six months later, he said, go to Ahab and tell him that that's what you've been praying for six months. So he went to Ahab and he said, God is not going to open up the windows of heaven and pour you out any blessings until there's a change. Three years go past. Now they meet at Carmel. And at this prayer meeting, Elijah finally gets to that point and we see in his prayer, he prays according to God's word. You see it in the text in 1 Kings. It's repeated several times. All according to your word. Prayer is an offering up of our desires for things agreeable to God's will. So I want you to know, my dad always taught me, don't pray to win the lottery. I always wanted to disagree with that. I thought if you won the lottery, you could do a lot with that money. But he often just said, be careful what you pray for. And so when you think about what, what is he actually asking God to do? Elijah wanted God to get the glory. He wanted Baal to be exposed for a phony. And so the heavens, no more rain until now. And he prays, oh Lord, oh Lord. In fact, let's look at the text. If you, if you see the prayer that is spelled out for us in, uh, in that passage in 1 Kings chapter 18. They've gathered up there, and I think it's in verse 30. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came, and, and he fixed the altar that the Lord had thrown down. So I wanted to be able to illustrate it for you. He goes ahead and builds an altar. There at the top of... Now, when they built the altar, why did he have to build it? Because it was... Nobody was using it. They had just given up. 
on doing those services up there. And then he says something else. I want you to get some water. So four barrels of water. I didn't want to bring rear barrels. And then he says, do it again. And if you're picturing this, there's been three and a half years since there's been any rain. Where are you finding the water? There are some springs that could have come up from up there, but there's a great possibility that they had to actually go and to the Mediterranean and fetch the salt water. And then they got another set of things. By the time all this was done, the people are, are building with excitement. Wow. He's not just thinking that maybe he'll get an answer. He's overdoing it. And the people are paying attention because they're sick and tired of the boring show on the other side, you know, where people are, they're all bloody now and it's, they're, they're all, their energy's gone. Elijah has all this excitement. And then if you look at the text there, after all of this stuff, he, he, uh, he ends up coming in in verse 31. He took the 12 stones and in verse 32, he built the altar and bit the trench around it. And then in verse 34, The second time, and then the third time, verse 35, he just says, this is full of water. Verse 36, now the Elijah comes near and he prays. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things as you have bidden me to do. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So the point that I'm making here is that this prayer is, is passionate. The fervent prayer, he didn't just say, oh God, if that's what you want. When you look at Elijah's praying, there was intensity. There was passion. And if Elijah has passion like we have, then I want to encourage you in the month of November to pray with passion. Now, the third point of this sermon moves away from Elijah and it moves to God, the providence of God. On Reformation Sunday, how appropriate. It's very significant to be able to see the glory of God lifted up because God is free to do all his holy will. But when God listens to this prayer, when God has already sent him up there, God has already told him that something's going to change. The windows of heaven are just about ready to be opened. But before the windows of heaven are going to be open, what comes first? What comes from heaven? I had to get another prop. Three prayers, four. It's worked earlier. There we go. Now, it's pretty lame. The effects on Mount Carmel, when you stand there and you realize that from the sky above, this fire came down and it consumed the altar and it consumed the stones and it consumed all the water. And so there was no evidence of anything left so anybody would worship that. Everything gone. Because glory belongs to God alone. I try to mimic the fire. I can't. You can't either. When God sovereignly chooses to get involved, the word providence has the root word provide, provision, you get it from Jehovah Jireh, which was on another mountain in Israel, a lot closer over to, uh, to Jerusalem, where Abraham goes to offer up Isaac and a lamb is caught in the thicket. God provided. And here God provided as well. He provided an answer because God answers prayers. 
the fervent prayers of righteous people. Providence. When you understand and you unpack it, you're going to be fascinated how this all works together for good. He not only sent fire, but a little bit later he sends rain. And, he, and, and, and as I watched, as I thought through it, in order to send the rain, first the fire comes and Elijah has to go and he has to kill all 450 false prophets. He didn't want them to keep promoting their false stuff. Obviously, they didn't want to do interviews with them on the next day on the television shows that would have spun it differently. Basically, he says, no, God won, and that's it. And so he went down there, took care of all this business. And then the Bible says that he had to run back up to the top to be able to pray again, to pray for water, to pray for rain. Or as Malachi 3 says, that when you give your tithe to the Lord, he will open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing you'll not have room enough to receive. Well, let me tell you, they ended up seeing the windows of heaven filled with water, and it started to pour. And when Elijah was leaving from Mount Carmel and he was running down, the Spirit of God came upon him and he even ran faster than Ahab going down on the roads with, a, with his chariot. He even went faster. I'm telling you, what a prayer meeting that was. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever seen God answer your prayers? Or is that only for Elijah? See, the providence of God is that he can give you exceeding abundantly above what you ask or pray for or what you think. The third thing that comes on a different mountain is the word. If you listen to, this, to the Baal prophets, they prayed and prayed and prayed, and there was no voice. The voice of God comes in chapter 19. After Elijah has done all this stuff, he stood up against the wrong things. A lot like Martin Luther on Reformation Day, as he stood up to these things, he got weary and well-doing because you'll find out that a little bit later they took him to court, to the Diet of Worms. We'll touch on it tonight. And they were telling him, shut up. You can't say those things. You can't say anything against the church. And then he finally said, here I stand. Unless you can show me that I'm wrong according to scripture, I can't do anything else. Here I stand. Elijah had taken the stand, but he was weary and well-doing. And you'll find out that he flees because it seems like everybody, including the government, is still kind of hostile. They're not happy. Now they're angry probably that the water came too fast. You know, people can never be happy. And he ends up getting all by himself down where the Ten Commandments were given and God finally speaks to him with a still small voice. See, praying is not only you telling God things, but God speaking to you. And in that still small voice, Elijah knew what he was supposed to do. I'm praying that God will provide that for you during this month. The applications of our heart is to take this seriously. Prayer is not just uh, based on our temperamental passions. You know, it's, it's so much more important than who wins the game. It's what would God have us do? What are your passions like? For God's glory, for God's word to be cherished, for God's people to be in community. That's why the psalmist got it right in Psalm 133.1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. I want to encourage you to come and pray this week. Not simply on Saturday morning from 7.30 to 10.30. I want you to pray without ceasing. I want you to take your petitions to the Lord. I want to encourage you to talk to him. God is not mute. 
God is not relieving himself. God is not asleep. God is not guilty of any of these other things of an imagined God. And the people of God knew it when they saw the fire and when they felt the rain. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will speak to us. As the song said earlier, speak, O oh Lord. We will talk to you. We will talk back to you. Sometimes we'll argue with you. Lord, we can be frustrated with your agenda. We certainly saw that with Jonah in his praying. Oh, Lord, but I pray that you will speak to us and tell us what we need to hear. May you show us the path that we need to take, as it says in Proverbs 3, 6. I pray that you would put uh, some joy back into our hearts that as we lift up our, our, our request to you, they will also recognize your thankfulness, our, our, uh, a providence that leads us to true thanksgiving. Oh, Lord, I pray that it will not be a requirement that we give thanks, but it will be our privilege, especially for the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, you met us. The fire that you sent down on, not on Mount Carmel, but on Mount Calvary. You brought the, the anger and the wrath of God upon Jesus. And it almost consumed him. It took him to death. But Lord, I thank you that your grace was sufficient. That up from the grave he arose. And as a result, we now have access to pray to our Father. Unfettered access. The chains are gone. Oh, Lord, I pray that we will not create new ones as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.